It's remarkable to think that in 1774, just over two months after his 18th birthday, Mozart composed his 29th symphony. Remarkable, yes, but also perhaps purely logical, because he'd written his first three symphonies at the age of eight on his first visit here to London. And it's fitting that together with my period instrument orchestra harmony band, we explore and then perform this 29th symphony in the confines of a glorious building of exactly the same era, James Stewart's amazing Georgian chapel here at the old Royal Naval College in Greenwich. Now, before we get into the symphony itself, I want to just to say a word or two about where it comes from in terms of style and content. There was a group of composers known as the Mannheim School who began work in the early part of the 18th century, particularly Johann Stamitz was the main leading light behind it, and also J.C. Bach, who was the 18th child of the more famous J.S. Bach. Now, the idea behind the Mannheim School was to take the symphony, which up until that time had been something of a kind of appetite wetter, a curtain raiser, music which led on to the real meat of the program. They wanted the symphony to become more of a repository for important ideas, to become more like the meat itself. So, such was the kind of context of the symphony that Mozart and indeed Haydn inherited in the latter part of the 18th century. And of course, what those two great men did was to take the basic blueprint of the symphony derived from the Mannheim School and to turn it into a vessel for the most extreme, serious and highfalutin thoughts. They created what we now know as the modern symphony. Now, as I say, Mozart was 18 when he wrote this piece, and it has all the hallmarks of a coming-of-age work. He sets out his stall. He shows you all the myriad of incredible things that he can do compositionally, the dexterity, the imagination, the use of color and instrumentation, which had never been imagined possible, really, by composers previously. But, in a funny way, he does it sort of understatedly. It's not about self-aggrandizement. It's not about narcissism. In fact, the first movement, he asked the musicians to play allegro moderato. In other words, lively, but moderately so. There are no great customary drum and alarm type fanfare motifs to open this movement. Something much sort of smaller and more organic is allowed to grow, sort of out of nowhere. And as is often the case with Mozart, everything grows literally out of the very, very opening cell. Let me just play you the first two notes of the piece. A simple drop of an octave. Now, I'll play you the motif that follows directly from that, and you'll get the sense that you keep getting these dropping octaves, and he's just got a gradually rising sequence, rising note by note, higher, just totally sort of spinning a web of a theme. And so on. It's as simple as that just working his way up a scale. And what gives it a whole extra depth, though, is what accompanies it. In a way, the real interest here is not in the melody at all, but in the upwardly mobile harmony.
Now, exactly at that point, he shows a little bit of contrapuntal dexterity or ingenuity. He's got a little cannon going between the violins on one side and the violas, cellos and basses on the other. Already we've had so many of what you might call mature Mozart hallmarks there. Sudden fortes on weak beats, crucial life in the second violins and the violas, the middle of the string sound, never for them purely an accompanimental role. Mozart achieves true emancipation for instruments that hitherto had been very much in the background. Now, we've just hit the second subject territory now. Let me show you the elements that essentially make it up. First, there are five crotchets leading into a broken chord in the first violins. The second ingredient has a trill and a continuation which is echoed rather beautifully by the violas. The third element, grace notes, which kind of pervert and bend rather deliciously the melodic line as the theme curls gracefully down in imitation of itself. Then there's a fourth gesture, a more melodic figure in canon. And the final part of the second subject group is a sort of strutting motif, again, decorated by trills and under a held oboe note. Right, let's hear the whole of that second subject now with all those elements put together. Right, well, if this, I suppose you might call it expenditure of material, seems lavish, almost wasteful, what are we to make of the compact development section which follows, which ignores all of these riches and treats instead new ideas? Firstly, he's deliberately crass and obvious about changing key. He wants to really shove it in your face.
Then he works over an ascending scale, complete with the octave drop at the end, just like the first two notes of the piece. He hasn't lost that at all. Now that scale gets passed around. The violas quickly get the idea of it, but they also discover that it works equally well going in the opposite direction. We'll play Tutti now from the beginning of the development. The only other new element in this short development is this elegant little theme set over a rocking string accompaniment. And we're clearly into the recapitulation section. Now, I want to take you forward to the end of the recapitulation now. He lets it run its course. It's pretty much an exact imitation of what has happened in the exposition. He doesn't try necessarily to develop ideas too much further. That's something he will do later in his uh, more mature symphonies. But let me take you forward now beyond that into this very beautiful coda to this movement. First of all, there's an interesting, sort of unexpectedly prolonging little sort of bridge which takes us from the end of the recapitulation into the coda proper. It's just four bars long and it ends up leaving us a bit high and dry. Now where on earth do we go from there? The fact is he then gives us absolutely the motif, the first subject motif, but suddenly in a blazing piece of four-part imitation. In other words, you've got the first violins doing it, closely followed by the cellos and basses, closely followed by the horns, closely followed by the violas. An almost casual display of amazing contrapuntal skill. Let me just isolate those particular instruments so you can hear it very clearly. So we play from 189 through until 194, just those instruments. One final thing to show you, ladies and gentlemen, at the end of this little coda. The biggest dynamic effect that he's used thus far, totally a steal from the Mannheim School, the idea of very fast, very, very fast changes between forte and piano. Right, moving onwards now to the second movement, the slow movement, marked as is so often the case for Mozart, andante, meaning at a comfortable speed. Now, there are some incredible aspects to this, this music. 
Firstly, the kind of intimacy of this sort of internal balancing that Mozart affects. It feels very much like chamber music, particularly, I suppose, because you get this interweaving between the two violin parts. It's the work of a natural contrapuntalist, and it's particularly well served by the way that we have the orchestra laid out, which is invariably the way that certainly period instrument orchestras perform this kind of repertoire. The first violins are on one side of the conductor, the second violin is directly opposite. There's lots of room for sort of antiphonal effects, what I often describe as a kind of 18th century stereo. Now, there's also great use of dotted rhythm in this movement, which is a characteristic of late 18th century French music in particular, where it was considered to be stately. Also, you'll be interested to notice that he mutes just the violins, not the violas, cellos and basses, but just the violins, giving a particular kind of quality, a sort of silkiness, but also a kind of a searing quality, which is particularly apparent when we're using gut strings as we are. And this sort of muted quality very much evokes the spirit and the influence of Haydn, I suppose. But ultimately, there's a kind of twilight beauty, a sense of romance, which belie Mozart's slender 18 years. Violin has that theme. You can hear, can't you, that incredibly fine-tuned sense of inner balance. The inner string parts taking the melody, leaving the first violins free to decorate over the top. Let's take you forward now to the second subject, a rather more knotty affair. It comes first in the violins, and then it comes again doubled by the oboe, and it's that part of it that we'll play now. Listen particularly to the bright droplets of sound that we get from the second oboe, just underlining and providing a counterpoint to what the first oboe is doing. You notice how effortlessly he's just slipped the first violins into triplets. And that figure, together with a rocking trill motif, form the basis of another short development section. We'll play the beginning of it. And so the development continues, the short amount of time that remains to it, and then we get a tiny bridge to take us back into the recapitulation section, and it's a wonderful example of the oboes and the horns, a kind of true emancipation that Mozart affected for them as well. They've become a little choir or band of their own. 
You know, they're no longer the servants of the strings. There's the recapitulation beginning. Finally, I just want to look at the very last part of the coda, because even this slow movement has a coda, an end piece stuck on the end. And again, the winds in full, glorious technicolor. The first oboe, just in the last six bars of the piece, at long last, gets his chance at a crack at the first theme. And the violins are unmuted, interestingly, which is for the only time in this movement, a very, very different and shocking contrast in color. I don't know if Mozart is saying, perhaps we've daydreamed too long. In the third movement of this symphony, the dance movement, the minuet and trio, you get a tremendous sense of the energy of the outer movements, the first movement we've already played, the last movement still to come. The energy of those movements sort of spills over into this minuet. And also Mozart takes that dotted rhythm idea from the slow movement, but it's become like a kind of obsession. Its gawky character pervades every bar of this music. take you forward now into the trio, which works, as you'd expect with Mozart, as a perfect complement to that rather awkward minuet. Mozart creates a sort of gorgeously lissom and elegant trio. It's almost as if he's saying, just when you thought I'd got stuck in geeky teenage mode. Let me show you what I mean. Now, where does that music come from? Although it's completely different in character, it does nonetheless have a very strong familial relationship with the main theme of the minuet. I'll show you. Just ask the first violins to play the first bar and a half of the minuet. Now, play the first seven notes of the trio. You can hear that, I think. It's a classic example of Mozartian metamorphosis. And yet, of course, it's changed utterly in the trio. The color and the character of it, it's become knowing in a way, warm and mature. And I often think that it's music like this that most fundamentally puts the lie to what you might call the Amadeus myth. There are many great things about the meticulously researched play and subsequent film by Peter Schaeffer, Amadeus. But the one part of it which I think is unfortunate in terms of our understanding, our experience of Mozart, is the idea that he remained this kind of child genius who's more interested in scatological jokes and farting under the table. In fact, if you read his letters as a man, you realize just how capable he was of the most warm, deeply compassionate and wise relationships with other adult human beings, his wife, his father, 
and his friends. And I think it's little touches like that opening to the trio which prove it in musical terms. Now, there's a further connection between the minuet and the trio. Again, I'm going to ask the first and indeed the second violinist this time to play the first bar and a half of the minuet. Now, can you play the upbeat to bar seven through to the end of bar eight? So you can see he's continuing his little discourse and carrying forward ideas that were in one primary colour in the minuet and a completely different set of colours in the trio. I'll play the whole trio through now, I think, just to set it in contrast with the minuet and then we'll go back and play the minuet as it is, the end piece. and so on. What a great man of contrast Mozart was. We look finally at the finale, which is marked Allegro con Spirito, and it is genuinely a music full of spirit and fire. Interesting, once again, it relates back actually to the first movement, and there is therefore an outer unity to this work, that what happens in the last movement thematically has so much in common with what happened thematically in the first movement. Mozart is always looking, I think, to create a kind of arch shape like that, that first thoughts somehow reconfigure themselves but reappear in some reconstituted fashion in the last movement as well. So particularly that octave drop, you remember the very first two notes of the first movement? Here they are again, writ large in this fiery section. have heard those kind of hunting horns there, ladies and gentlemen. This piece is on one level in the style of a chasse. In other words, based on hunting horn calls. And what was mainly ascending scales in the first subject you heard in the violins gets turned upside down now, suggesting a crescendo, which of course is impossible to do with a descending figure. But somehow the ferocity and the nature, the way they're voiced, it sounds like a crescendo. I'll show you. Now, there's further imitation here, 
You get the horns together with the cellos and basses, some very testing horn writing, passing a little broken chord motif to and from the first violins. <laughs> And here we are at the second subject group. Now, again, it's less about melody, this music, and more about texture. And it's also quite comical. The first violins have simply a repeated B viewed from below, then above, then misplaced down the octave, and then up the octave. Now, let me add the second violins. You've got a melody of sorts. Then, listen to this lovely, warm, shifting harmony which you get in the violas, the cellos, and the basses, a kind of antidote to the farce that Mozart sort of set up. It's so brilliant at expressing, I think, different moods simultaneously. Do you remember those upwardly mobile scales from the first movement of this symphony, particularly in the development? Well, here they are, writ large, like a kind of rocket, or perhaps I should say a Mannheim rocket. They're very much in the style of the kind of flourishes that Mannheim composers wrote. And this same firecracker concludes all three sections of this last movement. So it becomes, in a way, a kind of useful oral signpost. But it's also an upward scale to nothing. Has everything come to a grinding halt? Well, no, no grinding halt. After a heartbeat's pause, the racing figure continues, and we've hit our development section. Now, let me play you the beginning of the development section as it might have been. <laughs> Obviously, Mozart wouldn't have written that. It's way too predictable to do it forte and then just to do an echo effect over the same material. What he does actually is start out like he's going to repeat it and then immediately give us a forte halfway through the piano phrase and take us to a completely new territory, tonally speaking, anyway. He sort of relentlessly circles around keys in this section, a bit like a cat stalking a sparrow. <laughs> Further little contrapuntal games now, ladies and gentlemen. The first violin motif gets past the second violins and the violas. And so we're looking at the first subject motif from a myriad of different perspectives.
there's no question at all of winding down towards the recapitulation. He drives us forward through the most obstinately pugnacious series of chords, like we had at the end of the exposition, and again, the Mannheim rocket. <laughs> It's remarkable, isn't it, that Mozart's achieved such a successful equilibrium between lyricism and abstract instrumental colour. Just as an end piece, let me show you something that happens in the coda. We get a bold unison based on the first subject material, but in yet another new way, sort of smacking us over the head with it now. And notice the Chasse-style Haydn hunting horns coming up, outrageously, even dangerously high. So one final joyous whoop, one final fabulous Mannheim rocket to end the symphony. Composed by a young man in a hurry, I think you could say, with so much to say and so many ways of saying it. Time for some questions. I've got a couple of questions about the orchestra. Uh, most period uh, instrumental ensembles play at slightly lower than normal concert pitch, I believe. What pitch does this orchestra play at and does it vary depending on venue and uh, performance? Very interesting question, actually. I mean, for a start, if you go back and try and look at what is authentic, what is accurate, it's almost impossible to do so because everyone, not just in every town, but probably within each street within every town, had their own version of what pitch they used. Today, we are using 430, but uh, it could be higher, it could be lower. So it's a completely open book, and that's what's lovely about it. And of course, you know, we all know that if you play a modern piano, which is tuned to what's called equal temperament, every semitone is exactly the same distance apart. Now, in the old days, before there was equal temperament, it meant that some semitones were slightly closer or slightly further apart than others, meaning that certain keys would have a very, very distinct character, maybe a very, very true and perfect character. Other keys would be sour or brutal. So the very choice of key for a composer, particularly in Mozart's day, Beethoven's day, Schubert's day, was so much more telling and so much more interesting in a way than the kind of homogenized sense of tonality that we have today. 